0: Um, if you want to open up to First Corinthians 13, it's on the board, it's the scripture that we read at the beginning, that's where we're going to start. First Corinthians 13. Um, for those of you that have been here pretty regularly, uh, we've been going through the qualities of love from this chapter. Um, if you're joining with us today, uh, hopefully it's still a helpful discussion for you as we focus in on one of the qualities of now, we're yet to talk about. When you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and when you look at the beginning of verse 4, look at what it begins to say here. Because I want to read it again just for emphasis. James did a good job reading it for us. Um, but I want to read it again just so it's fresh and we keep hearing it. Um, beginning in verse 4, it says, Love is patient. And we talked about that several weeks ago. Love is kind. talked about that as well. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. And it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And the beginning of verse 8 says love never ends. Right Now, there's a whole context that this chapter is coming in. And just for the sake of our lesson, we don't have time to go through all of the context. But... The Corinthian church struggled with this. Um, I don't think if we were able to teleport back 2,000 years, if we were to be able to interview the Christians in this church and said, do you love God? What do you imagine most of them would have said? Yes, right? They're believers after all. They're part of the church. And if you said, do you love Christians? Do you love other believers? What do you imagine they would have said? Yes, right? But when you read the book of 1 Corinthians, almost from the outset, chapter 1, right? Division. Chapter 2, you're not living like you have the Spirit, right? You're living like fleshly people, your babies in Christ. Chapter 3, you're building differently on the foundation of Jesus, and you're valuing some are of Paul, some are of Apollos, right? And you keep going through the book, and you're seeing all these issues. Chapter 5, One of you is sleeping with your mother-in-law, and the rest of you are just okay with it, right? Chapter 6, you're suing each other. What's up with that, right? Chapter 7, and you just keep going through it, and it all comes back to how they're really not loving one another. And I think 1 Corinthians 13 is here to show us that if we know really what love is, right? If we really know what love is, we're not going to claim to love someone if we don't show all these qualities, right? We're not going to claim to love God if we're not living all of these qualities, because love is, just as 1 Corinthians 13, every one of these things. It's not the lack of patience, but love is patient, right? Love doesn't sometimes boast. It says love is not boastful. So for me, the challenge is when we're going through this series, right? If I find in my heart and in my life some shade of this characteristic, even if it's not all the time, then in that moment, I'm not really loving, right? And so this morning, I want to talk about one characteristic that we've yet to get to. And if you look with me, it's in verse five. Um, And it says this way. In verse five, it says, actually, let's start in verse 14. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast Love is not arrogant or rude, does not insist on its own way, and then is not irritable. Right? Does every translation say irritable there? Does anyone have something that says something otherwise? Yeah. Verse 5. Yeah, angered is not provoked, some translations say, right? Depending on your translation, you have some form of this. You have resentful irritable, provoked, easily angered. And so I think that's kind of the idea of this. When you look at the word, I, I, I was trying to figure out what exactly this is saying, and so I went to um, like a Greek dictionary lexicon thing online, and it, the idea is, as it says here, um, I, ha- I wrote down the definition here, and it says love is not easily provoked is probably the closest, because what it means is to make sharp or to sharpen, to stimulate, spur on, and then to irritate, provoke, arouse to anger. So this idea is is not provoked, right? You're not spurred on, you're not stimulated, and the idea is toward anger, right? Um, There's only two places in the whole Bible that this exact word is used. The other one is in Acts Acts 17, verse 6, and it says this, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. You remember? And that's right when he looks at an idol that says to the unknown God, and he's like, hey, you guys, this says to the unknown God, and I'm going to tell you about him. And he starts preaching. That's kind of a good form of provoked. We would say that it was a good thing that Paul was provoked there, right? He was provoked to teach them. So This idea of being provoked is not inherently bad, but what are you being provoked towards, right? And here in 1 Corinthians 13, it's talking about the negative. Do not be provoked. And I think the text here is toward anger. Do not be easily angered. Do not be irritated, you might even say, right? So let's talk about that this morning. 1 Corinthians 13. In English, we have one word for love, right? Like, I love you. I love my mom. I love my cat. I love my job, right? We just say, I love, right? We might say, I like, and that means something a little different, or I enjoy, that means something a little different. But the word here, as I've said multiple times through these lessons, is agape. The Greeks had many words for love, and one of them was agape. And this was a choosing. I choose to love you, and it's not a romantic love. It's not like, I love my mom or dad, a familial love, but it's, I choose to love you. Really, the idea behind this is like, I'm going to choose to love you in service. I'm going to choose to do something for you. And that's the love that's being discussed here. So, how is it that that kind of love is not provoked? Like, what does that mean? And so, what I want to talk about this morning is, why isn't love, godly love, agape love, provoked? right? That's the first part that I want to talk about. And the second part is, how do I overcome being provoked, right? So that's kind of the two parts I want to talk about. So one, why isn't love provoked? Well, you could just simply say, well, 1 Corinthians 13 says it's not, so there. And that would be true, right? That's the teaching of God. Well, like, what's the deeper kind of fundamental thing behind this? Like, why isn't this equality of love. I mean, God gets to make the rules, right? He could say, well, in fact, love is easily provoked to anger. He could have said that, I guess, in a way, right? And I think it's because of um, a couple things. One is kind of that first answer, right? Because God said so. I mean, look look at verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 13 again. Love is patient. Love is kind, right? So by the time you get to love is not provoked or easily angered, you're kind of like, well, duh, you've already said it's patient and kind, right? But also I'm going to go a little bit deeper, more meaningful. I'm going to suggest to you one easy way for us to know that love, a quality of that is not provocation towards anger is because Jesus didn't really do that, right? And if Jesus is God, that's to suggest to us that God's character in himself, he doesn't really do this. He's not like easily stirred up towards anger. It's not something that's just kind of bubbling under the surface. And soon as somebody like pokes at it, it's just like, bah, right? That's kind of how I think about being provoked to anger. You're ready to jump. And soon as somebody like goes that direction, there it is, right? And so let's look in Luke 11. I think Luke 11 is a great demonstration of how Jesus, his love for people doesn't manifest itself as being easily provoked, right, towards anger. Luke 11. And, and I think it starts with verse 1. Verses 1 through 13, if you turn to Luke 11, show us why Jesus isn't provoked easily to anger, I think. He never comes out and says, this is why Jesus isn't provoked to anger, but I think this is the fundamental thing. Look at verse 1 and let's read this together. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend? Lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him and he will answer from within. Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his uh, impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. I think in these first 13 verses is a model for us to follow. And I could have stopped at verse 1 and just said, look at the model, right? The how-to. Because I think the rest of Luke 11 is Jesus encountering people that are, like, poking at him, asking dumb questions, and they know they're dumb questions, or asking questions that they don't know are dumb but are really dumb, Right? Or people that just have curiosities or people of the world that just want to see what Jesus is saying. But like these are all, and we're going to talk about this more in a second, these are all like provocations Jesus deals with through chapter 11. And if he was easily angered, a lot of these stories would have unfolded a lot different. Right? I think because of the beginning of Luke 11, we know why Jesus isn't easily angered. Did you find it? Like, how does Luke 11 start? Jesus goes and he prays, right? And I think this serves a couple of functions. One is that um, prayer tends to kind of root us in peace, doesn't it? Like, when you pray, that's kind of an admission, whether you're consciously thinking or not, that things are kind of out of your hands and ultimately someone else is going to kind of dictate what happens, right? Isn't that kind of what prayer is fundamentally? You're just kind of accepting like, hey, there's something bigger going on, and I'm allowing it to kind of go, right? That's what prayer is, and I think Jesus shows us that, right? And even as teaching the uh, disciples to pray, right? Father, give us, right? He mentions your kingdom. Forgive us, right? There's something bigger going on. There's someone else really in control here. And so prayer tends to give us that peace. And we're going to talk more about that at the end of the lesson. And I also think prayer serves another function. It roots us in truths. And I think the product of those truths should be peace, right? They go hand in hand. But when I recognize various truths, like I'm not in control as much as I like to think I am sometimes. That there's bigger things going on than just me and this person, right? There's deeper things going on than just a stupid question, right? When I realize that God might be using this situation or God's will needs to be done or, you know, whatever else, Satan may be trying to work through this person and that's really what I'm confronting. All these truths, prayer can bring to the forefront, right? Right? When I pray, I should be praying God's will be done, and that reminds me of some basic truths. And that should, again, root me in this peace and remind me that, like, hey, love is not provoked anger. right? And so Jesus does this in the beginning of Luke 11. He prays and I think roots himself in these truths. He prays, and I imagine there's peacefulness that comes with praying. And so now he's prepared to deal with all these potential provocations, right? Look with me in Luke 14, or eleven fourteen, sorry, 11, chapter 11, verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So Jesus does a miracle. He does something amazing that nobody else could do and helpful, right? It's not just like a miracle. You're like, oh, that's great. That has zero utility, but that was cool. Jesus actually does a miracle that's useful. And then people decide to say that he's doing it on Satan's behalf, right? He's doing it by the prince of demons. In fact, some people even say that they want to test him, right? And they say, show us another sign from heaven. If Jesus was easily provoked to anger, do you think this is a moment that that would show? (laughs) I think so. And I look at this as kind of provocation from the naysayers, right? Today we like to say it this way sometimes, provocation from people that are just going to hate, right? Like, no matter what you do, they're just kind of hateful. Um, Do you guys ever experience that? Jesus experienced it, right? But look at what Jesus says here. Look at verse 15. Or verse 16, uh, 17, sorry. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And he continues to go on about like what he means by that, right? He proves to them, like, your logic really doesn't make any sense. Why would Satan cast out himself, right? A house divided against itself falls. That's basically his logic. Uh, Jesus angry, easily provoked, what might he have done in this scenario? We can only imagine having the power of God himself, being God himself. He could have done any number of things, right? And in anger, they're typically angry things that you would do, right? And so Jesus actually, when faced with the provocation of naysayers and people that want to hate, he just responds with teaching. He responds with patience, which love is, what, patient, right? Let's move down to the next section, verse 27. And he said these things, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. I'm going to give this woman the benefit of the doubt and say her motive is good. Like, she sees the miracle, she hears the explanation of Jesus saying, no, this is from God, right? And so she's overwhelmed and just says, blessings on Jesus. But I'm going to suggest to you that this seems immature, doesn't it? Does she seem like she's totally getting the weight of this? On some level, yes. She sees Jesus is great, blessings to him and his family, right? What seems to be her focus? I think it's kind of the physical here, right? She's like, man, how lucky or how happy and blessed should the people be that like raised you? And Jesus' response is this, verse 28. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Her response, I think, is a good one, but is it the best one? I think that's what Jesus is saying. You're right. Like Mary was blessed, wasn't she? Jesus' mother, in fact, God said you would be most blessed among women. What she said is true. But there's something deeper here, right? So I would say if you're easily provoked to anger, you're not loving in that way, couldn't you be tempted by the immaturity of this woman? You're like, ah, you're just an idiot. You don't get it, right? Like, don't we get provoked sometimes by people's misunderstanding or immaturity and we get angry? Jesus didn't do that. Right he saw that immaturity, or he saw that misunderstanding, the lack of depth there, and tried to inform right Bring some depth. Look at the next section, verse twenty nine. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, "This generation is an evil generation; it seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, for as Jonah became the sign to the people of Nineveh. So will the Son of Man, Jesus, be to this generation. I'm just going to stop there. What's the provocation here? We don't actually see the crowd say anything. Right? And I'm going to suggest to you that sometimes people don't have to say anything to provoke us to anger. You guys ever experienced that? <clears throat> I think in this particular instance, sometimes you look at people and the life that they live. Like, Jesus looked at the crowd, and what did he see in them? Evil. He sees their sin. He sees their wickedness. Doesn't that provoke us sometimes? People don't have to say anything. We see what they're doing. We see their life, and we get angry about it. I don't know if that's one that all of us have experienced. I know, even me, I'm not... I don't tend to get angry quickly. I've even experienced this one, like just looking at people's lives and I just get kind of, ugh, right? Jesus is not easily provoked to anger, which is interesting because look at what he says. They crowd in. Apparently they want to hear what he has to say. And what does he say? This generation is evil, right? What I learned from this is we know Jesus is loving. And we know he's not easily provoked to anger. So what I'm taking away from this is when you're tempted to be angry about just the state people are in, their lifestyle, their sinfulness, you know, sometimes I think Jesus' example is here is address it. Like, don't get angry about it. Like, try to address it and fix the problem. Like, how would these people have escaped their evilness or their wickedness without knowing they were actually wicked? Right? The key to change is knowing there needs to be change, right? You can't change unless you know there has to be a change. So Jesus is actually doing the loving thing here, the patient thing, giving them an opportunity to hear what he's saying, right? Is this Jesus lashing out in anger? Is he being easily provoked here? I don't think so. And so we see Jesus, how he handles uh, the provocation of just people's sinfulness. Look at the next section, beginning in verse... uh, 37 verse 37 sorry okay verse 37 beginning while jesus was speaking a pharisee asked him to dine with him so he went in and reclined at the table the pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner and the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. I look at this one as kind of the provocation of people being judgmental. Right? Right? Jesus is not easily provoked to anger here, but he encounters a group of people that are being judgmental. They have a certain expectation of how he's going to handle himself before dinner, right? And it involves washing. Um, if I understand this correctly, like Jewish tradition was, people would kind of like pass around like, or there'd be one or it'd get passed around, kind of like a washing bowl. You just kind of dip your hands in it. Not like a thorough soap, but whatever washing. You just kind of dip your hands in it to, to mark that, like, I'm clean, I pay attention to the traditions, I'm holy, you know, I'm going to eat this meal. Jesus apparently didn't do that. And so people were like, he's not one of us. He's doing it wrong. As far as I can tell, there's no biblical teaching that says you had to do this. right? And I think Jesus' point in this is this is a judgment, this is a tradition people have. Do we have similar traditions? Not just around dinner, but just like cultural expectations, right? You meet somebody new. Typically here in the States, we shake their hand. How are you doing? Where are you from? Those kinds of things. If you could walk into a room with people you've never met before and nobody comes up to introduce themselves, how do you feel? Right? It's kind of weird. You feel like an outcast a little bit. You're like, man, it's a cold group. I'm not going back in there. Right? Tough crowd. It's not a right or wrong thing. It's just a cultural expectation. Right? Have you ever met people that if you don't do the cultural norms there's like a shun or a weirdness there and they judge you for that? That's what Jesus is up against. If you're easily provoked anger, would this do it? When people start judging you for not abiding by their traditions... I think it would. I think I would be annoyed by this. And Jesus, I think, shows us that love, since God is love, Jesus is love, love exposes hypocrisy here. And that's what he says, right? He says, you fools, you're so concerned about just like these traditions of outward washing when your hearts are all wicked and greedy. You're not at all concerned about kind of this idea of inward washing, right? Right? He shows them their hypocrisy, but also informs them of the right way, right? At the very end of what I read uh, in verse, I believe it was 41, give as alms those things that are within and behold, everything is clean for you. When Jesus is provoked by those that are judgmental, his love for them doesn't get angry. He addresses the hypocrisy and shows them the right way. And that's what love should do if we're not easily provoked. All right, verse 45, getting towards the end of the chapter and then we'll make our applications. Beginning in verse 45, one of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. This is an astute guy. He's realizing this applies to him. And he said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. And he goes on to say, woe to you for this, woe to you for that. I look at this, and I kind of see someone who's smart enough to connect the dots, but also a little too sensitive, right? A little too immature, right? You guys ever encountered those types? That, like, as soon as they feel like you're saying something negative about them, they're like, whoa, are you talking about me? Right? That's kind of what's happening here. If Jesus is easily provoked to anger, what might his response be? Of course I'm talking about you nitwit, you idiot. Like, of course. He doesn't say that, but he also doesn't shy away from the truth, does he? He says, you're right, because you're doing these things. You're giving, they're lawyers, so they're good at this, right? You're giving all kinds of laws or burdens to people when you yourselves aren't willing to live by them. You don't touch them with your fingers, right? We would call that hypocrisy. Which fundamentally is the same issue as the Pharisees who were washing, right? They were hypocrites. So I think when Jesus is facing the sensitive or the immature, his love encourages application. He says, yes, this is connected to you, and this is why, right? But he doesn't get angry. And the last part here is in verse 53. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling on one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on housetops. So I like to think of this last section, especially when you look at verses 53 and 54, the end of the chapter. People that are openly opposed to Jesus are trying to provoke him and trap him, right? If I'm easily angered, That's probably the simplest way to get me angry, is easily oppose me and try to mess me up, right? It's not like you oppose me, but you leave me alone. It's like you're opposing me, literally. You are putting things in my way for my task. That's how I'm going to get angry fast. If you want to disagree with me, disagree with me and leave me alone, right? But they're trying to mess him up. If Jesus has easily provoked anger, I think this is the one to me that's going to do it, right? But look at what Jesus says. He leaves them, and then he gets to verse chapter 12, and he looks at the crowds, and he says, avoid those people. Avoid the influence or the leaven of those Pharisees, right? So when you look at this, I think you're dealing with the provocation of the opposed, and the love of Jesus doesn't cover up their sin, right? He doesn't say, yeah, no, you guys... They're okay, they're just misinformed. He says, yeah, they have problems and avoid their influence, right? He doesn't say anything mean about them. He states the facts, the truths. And also, he's encouraging the right while discouraging the wrong. Did you notice that in chapter 12? If I'm tempted to follow Jesus or I'm trying to follow God, and I've always known the Pharisees are supposed to be religious leaders, and then someone comes on the scene that's giving me proof to think he's really from God, and then he starts telling me all of the religious authorities I've ever thought might be close to God or kind of whack. And they're just like doing their own thing and they're hypocrites and their influence is bad. I would start to be like, oh man, like what am I going to do, right? There's nobody to like can help. In verse two, he says, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. For the Pharisees, that means bad things, Right? Their hypocrisy is going to be known. But if you're a good person, what does that mean? Like, the good things you're doing are not going to go unnoticed. So Jesus here is like, yeah, he's discouraging wrong, but he's also encouraging right. Right? Did you notice that? Now, you might read this because you know your heart in the negative, because to you it's speaking negative. Or you might read this in the positive because you know your heart, and to you it's affirming you're doing the right thing. But Jesus is doing both at the same time. Right? And that's love. Love is not provoked to anger, but encourages the right while discouraging the wrong. Right? So what do we do with all this? Hopefully you've been making the connections as we've been going along, thinking about yourself when you're dealing with naysayers or haters or when you're just dealing with the immature or the sensitive or the opposed. You're starting to see some application. If I'm going to love the way that 1 Corinthians 13 says I need to love. If I'm going to love like Jesus loves, I need to teach the truth and not shy away from confrontation and be patient and be kind, all those things. But I'm going to suggest to you from the beginning of our discussion that you need to root yourself in prayer. I'm inclined to think that Jesus leaves this model for us to show us that we won't get through stuff like this without doing that first. Think about the night that Jesus is betrayed. What did he try to get the apostles to do with him? Right? And what did they fail at doing? Is it just happenstance or coincidence that they didn't stick with Jesus through that whole ordeal? I think prayer was the key there. And they failed at that. And so I think Jesus is showing us here prayer is the key. When he's going to be dealing with all kinds of people coming at him, he starts by praying and teaching people how to pray, and then he deals with that. Right? So we need to root ourselves in prayer. Uh, first, or Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7 tell us that when we pray, right, there's something that comes to us that surpasses all knowledge, and it's peace. Philippians 4 makes that connection for us. I think we could have made that logical connection on our own. <coughs> Philippians four says like when you're in, when you're in that intimate relationship with the Lord in prayer, there is a peace that comes and it doesn't always make sense, right? But there's a peace tied to that. John seventeen explicitly shows us when Jesus is praying for his disciples and his apostles that truth is wrapped up in prayer, right? That there is truths that come out in prayer, right? And that's all through John 17, how uh, God was going to protect him and and his truths. So when we root ourselves in prayer, we're given peace, we're reminded of truths, and that prepares us to be loving, right? It reminds us of that. What can really anger me, right? What can really anger me? Or leave me in a state where I'm really close to being angry. As soon as somebody like pokes or prods or asks or something, I'm going to be angry. If I have the peace of God. As a Christian, having kind of that just constant simmering anger in my heart where I'm just this close to boiling over, isn't that counterintuitive to being a Christian? Like, I'm a believer, and so shouldn't there be a peace and a contentment with that? Shouldn't there be, as 1 Corinthians 13 is saying, a love with that? Root yourselves in prayer. And lastly, remember that Jesus loves those people too. It's easy for us to remember that Jesus loves me, right? I'm kind of banking on that one. But I'm not necessarily always banking on the fact that Jesus loves you, right? We need to think about that. When people provoke us, like sometimes... I say, okay, I need to not be angry. Well, also, what helps in that is reminding yourself that the people that might be kind of testing your limit on that, God cares for them just as much as He cares for you. Didn't you see that all through Jesus' discussions with His people? These people could have made Him angry in each instance, but underlying that was not just Jesus' love for God, but Jesus' love for them. He wanted them to know what was right, He wanted them to know the truth. He wanted them to hear it in a way that was helpful for them so they didn't just write him off, right? Jesus loves them too. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. This is the last verse we'll look at and we'll be done. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I love this verse, totally taking it out of context, but I like what just by itself it's saying. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. When you're struggling with remembering that God loves other people too, remember this verse. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 11. And so, by your knowledge, this weak person, this brother, is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. That's how we need to think about people. Christ didn't just die for me. This person that I'm dealing with, that is tempting me to be angry, is somebody that Christ died for. So if you can root yourself in prayer and you can remember that Christ died for pe- others, you're going to do way better not being easily provoked, right? Conversely in the positive, being loving. So hopefully this lesson's been helpful for you. Obviously, um, if you're not a Christian this morning, this lesson hasn't really talked about what all you need to do to be right with God, but talk to me Um, I'd be happy to, like, just look at Scripture with you. I don't want to give you my opinions on things. I just want to tell you what the Bible says. Um, So if that's why you're here this morning, please ask those questions. Certainly you need to be um, considering those things. If you are a Christian, if you're a believer, and you're looking to just grow your faith, hopefully this lesson's been helpful for you in trying to not be so easily angered and being more loving. If there's anyone here that needs the prayers of the congregation wants help in some sort of way, we're going to sing this song, number 497, that Robin's going to lead us in. And we're going to sing it to encourage ourselves, but also as a time that if somebody wants to make something known like that, those are, gives you a couple minutes to think about it and talk to somebody. Um, Anyway, this time we'll stand and sing.